Listener Production. Hi, briefers. I definitely have to keep my opinions to myself. My mum's an anti-vax liberal voter and dad's voted liberal all his life. If they knew I was voting Labor, shit would hit the fan. That is briefing listener Finn. And it sounds like he's going to keep his vote secret from his parents. Um, Where are you at? Are you in the same boat? Will you be voting differently from the rest of your family? And if so, how do you go about navigating all the politics at the dinner table? Yeah, elections, they're always a fraught time for this kind of stuff. So on today's episode of The Briefing, we're going to take a look at what it is like to be the political black sheep of the family. Now, I have to say, it is usually the case that young people vote more progressively Mm. compared to their parents. But our guest really bucks that trend. It's not so much like, oh, you've got a different political view to us. It's why the hell would you want to be a politician? And a general general kind of dislike of the political class or political people. If that voice sounds familiar, it's probably for a good reason. Here's some trivia. He was the youngest ever Australian federal politician, came to power in 2010, much to his parents' amusement slash dismay. Yeah, that's right. It's Wyatt Roy, and he's got a very interesting story about being the black sheep of his family. That is coming up in just a second. But first, as always, the headlines for today. I'm Jan Fran. I'm with Tom Tilly. It's Friday, May 13. With the election only eight days away now, policy announcements are coming thick and fast. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is expected to announce that foreign criminals will have to pay their own immigration detention costs under a new six-point border protection policy. So this policy would cost detainees $456 a day, um, and on average they've been detained for two years, so it might essentially speed up their exit. Anthony Albanese turning his attention to the Great Barrier Reef, Tom. Yeah, he's set to promise $200 million over four years to help reduce plastic pollution, uh, also to assist farmers to use less fertiliser and install sensors to study changes in temperature. In January, um, I should say the coalition announced $1 billion in new money for the reef. Clearly, both parties know that there is a problem there. Um, the coalition announced that after warnings that the reef could be listed in danger by the United Nations. And you know that there's an election coming up when the coalition spends $3 billion in marginal seats and Labor spends close to $1 billion in marginal seats. The Guardian had a very interesting article, Tom, that sort of showed all of the seats in Australia Mm. and the safer they got, the less money they got. (laughs) So (laughs) there's definitely some some cash splashing, dare I say some pork barrelling potentially ahead of the election. Big news for rugby fans like me. Australia will host the 2027 Men's Rugby World Cup and the 2029 Women's World Cup. Unbelievably excited about it. And it's going to be a real game changer for our code in in Australia and right throughout the South Pacific. Hooray! That was Executive Director of Australia's bid there, Phil Kearns. So this is going to be only the third time that we have hosted after we co-hosted the first tournament. This was way back in 1987 with New Zealand. And then we hosted on our own in 2003. So quite the coup. Yeah, no, it's awesome. Um, There's a little WhatsApp group called the um, Tilly Family Rugby Chat, which was lighting up about this overnight. Rugby's like, it's our kind of most beloved game, but feels like it's been withering away. You know, mm. not be making much money. Um, it's struggling to attract fans in the way it used to, and in competition to the AFL and the league, it's really not been doing very well. So this renews hope that there'll be a lot of enthusiasm, and it could save our game. Well, it's not just the Tilly family chat that's you know set to benefit. <laughs> Apparently, the tournament is going to boost the economy by two point eight 
billion dollars generate 14,000 jobs. Mm. They're great when they come here because they do kind of create a bit of a buzz and, and pump money back into the economy. The thing is about rugby, like it's not hugely popular here in Australia, but as a world game, it's pretty big. And these World Cups are, are massive. Um, they're ranked third behind the Olympics, the Football World Cup, and then the Rugby World Cup in terms of global sporting events. So it's a massive deal, and soon after we do this, we'll have the Olympics in Brisbane. So it's going to be a big time for Australian sporting events. And some not so great news for Queensland's southeast once again. The region is dealing with a deluge of rain. Yeah, I was actually in Brisbane for the last two days doing book stuff and the rain kept coming down and there was this eerie vibe as people just looked out the window going, oh God, not this again. So 100 millimetres has fallen in the Brisbane area in the past day, even up to 190 millimetres further west. Uh, and the six-hourly forecasts are talking about 100 to 160 millimetres more. Yeah, there's been 263 SES calls or calls to the SES over the past 24 hours. This is mainly happening in Brisbane, Moreton Bay and Ipswich. Um, you see some vehicles that have been mired in floodwaters overnight too, so not great. The only little bit of good news is the bomb is saying this bout of rain won't last as long because it's a faster moving weather system and is expected to ease tomorrow, thankfully. And to WA now, where the state has handed down another bumper budget. It is now bracing for a fight, though, over its share of the GST. Western Australia is expected to record an operating surplus of $5.7 billion in this financial year. Yeah, that's the Premier, Mark McGowan. I mean, that is pretty impressive, a $5.7 billion surplus. Compared to the federal budget, which is in a massive deficit, that's a great position to be in. It's the only government running a surplus. It also brings into question the GST carve-up. So there's been an overhaul um, announced. That was back in 2017, guaranteeing WA 70 cents of every dollar of GST they collect. In the past, they've been giving a huge chunk of it to the rest of the country, which they obviously weren't very happy about considering they've been doing so well. To overseas news now and the President and Prime Minister of Finland have released a joint statement saying that the country intends to apply for NATO membership. Yeah, this is a big deal because Finland shares a 1,300 kilometre border with Russia and has recently signed a security pact with the UK as they work to safeguard themselves from a Russian invasion. So the thing with this is that historically Finland has remained neutral, but there's been a huge spike in public support in the country for joining NATO. It's risen to about 76% according to a recent poll with just 12% of people against it. Now, support for the membership used to be a lot lower before the war in Ukraine, which I think is the opposite of what Putin intends to do. He always claimed that going into Ukraine was um, as a result of Ukraine wanting to join NATO. And now he's got Finland also wanting to do it as well, which um, I don't think was the goal here for him. Well, and Sweden wants to join as well. So they've been neutral up until this point and they're expected to start applying for NATO membership as well. So yeah, not great news for Russia. He's galvanised opposition and, of course, Russia have been um, had a pretty intense reaction to this potential move by Finland, saying that they will retaliate and take military technical steps. So that sounds quite ominous, but certainly the opposition to Russia is just becoming more and more united. 
All right, Tom, we're going to leave you there. Annika and I are going to chat black sheep of the family when it comes to politics. That's coming up. I was initially alerted to this when the gay marriage vote was in and my whole family voted no, which was really disappointing to me, having friends and family and in-laws that are part of the LGBTQ plus community. And conversations that we've had since then have really reaffirmed for me that we vote for different parties. That was briefing listener Lauren. Looks like she'll be voting very differently to the rest of her family. And look, Jan, she's probably not alone. I don't know about you, but even on election day, three of my immediate family will be even handing out how to vote cards for different parties. It's all part of democracy. Isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, look, I will say it's not unusual for young people in particular to vote more progressively than their parents. So there's a lot of research on this. There was something called the Australian Election Study that showed that there was this really kind of growing divide between the way older people and younger people voted. So the last federal election, this is really interesting, it saw the lowest Liberal Party vote on record for those under 35. At the same time, it saw the highest ever vote for the Greens. There's a little bit of a trend going on here. Yeah, it's a little surprise given how some of the, I guess, party policies are aimed. We know that progressive parties tend to attract those younger voters. And as you get older in life and you start to worry about different things, maybe you shift the conservative side. Although there were many examples where this isn't the case. Now, our guest today really bucks that trend. In fact, he bucked it all the way to Parliament House. In 2010, Wyatt Roy became the youngest ever person elected to Parliament when he won the Queensland seat of Longman. If you ask his parents, though, they might reckon he won it for the wrong party. Wyatt joins us now. Wyatt, tell us about your early life. Was politics discussed around the kitchen table? Did you know you are from a Labor family? had a quite good childhood, I suppose. I grew up on a uh, strawberry farm on the Sunshine Coast, uh, just north of Brisbane. And my family definitely were not active politically at all. My family very much traditionally voted for the Labor Party when I was growing up. And I'm the first person in my family to finish high school, including, you know, two older brothers who I love dearly and they've done other things with their life. But the idea that I would, you know, start with sort of finish high school or then even necessarily go into a, um, a political career was really not something that was um, that likely. My dad sort of was like a classic sort of hawk Labor voter who, you know, became a Howard Battler and loved Howard. And he really um, sort of changed his mind, I suppose, around that period. But um, certainly when I was born, that was sort of a just a naturally sort of Labor family. And, you know, my oldest brother definitely doesn't vote for the coalition. But, you know, I, I think life is bigger than politics and family is bigger than politics. And for me, it was, uh, it was a great upbringing and it was probably healthy that politics wasn't discussed too much at home, you know. You say politics wasn't discussed, but you knew they were a Labor family, right? Because uh, one of your colleagues I've spoken to, Jason Wood, former colleagues in the federal parliament, told me that when he put his hand up for the Liberal Party, his dad said, don't you know we're a Labor family? And it's sort of uh, <laughs> gone over Woody's head. So you obviously knew that even though politics wasn't a big deal, they were definitely left-leaning. I mean, left or just not necessarily coalition. I mean, it's just, I would just say, not politically engaged. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean they love the just the red team, though whatever other colour might be on the ballot paper, but not necessarily the blue team. That was part, in some ways, the strength and formation of how I started in politics. I mean, I remember my uh, my dad's best mate, um, 
he was a you know, union organiser with the local council and he always gave me great advice and helped, um, uh, you know, in my pre-selection even. I think he, he endorsed me in my pre-selection, I think, to sort of say, you know, Wyatt would be a good bloke in, in parliament even though we've got different political views and I think that's kind of quite a healthy grounding. Now, I have really strong reasons why I think I should be in the Liberal Party and, and you know, that's um, that's a big part of who I am and, and my life and my value system. But um I think you know life is better when you can sit down and discuss stuff with people from the other side and hopefully bring people together. And that was very much my upbringing. Really, was um, having you know people together and, and supporting each other and having a difference of opinion without disliking each other. So, what were those reasons as to why you felt that you should be in the Liberal Party, particularly given that your you know family was either Labor voters or apolitical at best? For me, there was a there was a really like crystallising moment. In the last year in high school, I um, my best mate was a, a guy named Pat who passed away a few years ago. But Pat ended up in a wheelchair, and uh, the one subject that I was was good at was economics. That was the one thing that I actually was was all right at. And uh, I was helping out Pat at the same time. And at university, I ended up sort of becoming his participation assistant as well. So we spent a lot of time together. And my economics teacher said, "You know, you understand economics." but you also understand social justice and helping people because she'd seen how I had spent time with Pat and the things we were doing. And she said, if you put the two together, you can actually make a difference in this space. Now, not with the idea of running for parliament a few years later as a Liberal candidate, but she said, you know, get involved in the political process and really contribute to disability policy was, was how I got that first hook. And for me, that's where I really found the philosophical foundation. Then also, you know, my life was sort of one of where, you know, my family, my dad worked hard. He was able to give me opportunities. I was rewarded for working hard and and had that aspirational mindset. And I think that sort of liberal philosophy of work hard, you're rewarded for hard work, have freedom of choice, you know, try and get government out of your life where you can. That's really the philosophical values that resonate with me. And it was a very natural sort of progression for me. I wasn't sort of sitting there, you know, thinking about or toying about the idea of being anywhere else other than the Liberal Party. That was always where I was going to be. And what's your family's reaction been to your political journey? Were they on board? It was not so much like, oh, you've got a different political view to us. It's why the hell would you want to be a politician? And a general, a general kind of dislike of the political class or political people as opposed to, um, hey, we don't like the fact that you wear the blue shirt instead of the red shirt. I mean, there is always a little bit of that. But your family is always going to be supportive on those sorts of things. But, I mean, I know for a lot of them, and, and particularly even for my dad, I mean, he really struggled at certain times with the idea of being in politics because, I mean, beating up on politicians is a national sport and everyone's going to keep doing that. But um, it is genuinely a really difficult lifestyle. I mean, you're massively publicly exposed and it doesn't matter what you do, half the population is going to hate you and, you know, the media is always going to come after you and the people around you and, you know, it's, it's more than a 24-7 type sort of job. And so, so I think that stuff was really, really hard for them. You know, I know it's probably a bit hard to sort of understand for some people who live and breathe politics, but really it was a sense of um, that's kind of a different world and it's good that he's out there doing it, but um, there's so much to around his life beyond politics. That was always the focus. What we sort of know is that the older people get, the more conservative they tend to vote. Well, at, at least that's sort of what data says. Like the Liberal Party is more likely to attract older voters. The Greens, for example, particularly in the last election, um, more likely to attract younger voters, those being under the age of 35. So there's an indication that, you know, the, when you, you get older, you kind of tend to change your mind and go the other way. You've already bucked the trend of being slightly more conservative than your parents, maybe. Do you reckon you'll buck yeah. the other trend and, and change? change your mind and end up running it, for Labor? 
Yeah, I might well become a radical socialist later in life and um, grow my hair long, but, but I'm not I'm not convinced that that's about to necessarily happen. I mean, I um, look, I completely understand why people become more conservative later in life because they, you know, they worry more about economic issues or hip hoc issues. And, you know, when you start having a mortgage and a family and all the rest of it, I can see how centre-right parties become more attractive for older people and you know, young people are more progressively minded. I mean, the, the one thing I would I would say about that, but was the thing that really attracted me to the Liberal Party or, or you know, to the centre-right of politics was a more libertarian approach. Get government out of my life. Let me choose and determine how I live my life. If I work hard, you know, please don't take away that opportunity and give it to somebody else. Like, let me be rewarded for working hard rather than penalise. And that sort of libertarian sort of you know, I think freedom is sexy type sort of approach is um, is something that I was really attracted to. I'm not saying all young people end up as liberals if we um, just talk about these things, but I think more people would if they understood the actual values of the Liberal Party in this country, which is, you know, essentially freedom. When we talk about voter intentions, you know, your family does have a big impact. They might not say vote Labor or vote Liberal, but the, the household you grew up in obviously impacts your vote. You've stood at polling booths in a marginal seat. What do you think is some of the bigger factors, especially these days as we go from the old sort of Labor vote working class and small business owners always vote Liberal? Those lines are being blurred, especially in sort of mining communities, which used to attract Labor votes and now don't. So is it a local member? Is it identity? Is it age? What do you think actually influences how we vote the most? I think it is all of the above. You know, you don't you don't have to look and sound exactly like the person you're voting for, but you do want to have a sense of they understand who I am, they understand the challenges that I face. They, at the very least, they're going to be very good at kind of listening and being proactive about that and, and giving me the time of day. And, you know, I used to always have this sort of line. I mean, obviously, when I was elected, I was, I was a 19-year-old running for parliament, so I couldn't pretend that I had all the life experiences of everybody else, but I was really, really conscious of the fact that a good member, somebody that, you know, you would ultimately walk into a ballot box and say, I can vote for that person, is somebody who's going to listen and empathise and proactively work to understand your your life. You know, my family were traditionally working class Labor voters. Now, a lot of traditional working class Labor voters from that period are just never going to vote for the Labor Party again because they've become, you know, in many parts a very different sort of inner city lefty type sort of organisation. And that goes back to my point. I think if you try and force your views on an area rather than try and be of that area, or at least listen and advocate for that area, it's, it's quite, um, I just don't think it works in politics. So I represented 140,000 people. I can't pretend that I had every one of their life experiences, but I definitely could have made sure I gave them a voice and I listened and empathised with them rather than telling them how smart I was and trying to enforce my view on their community. And I think that's where politics probably gets a bit lost today. It is generally mm. as much about listening as it is about talking. Do you reckon you'll get your comeuppance, Wyatt? If you buck the trend with your family, do you reckon you'll have a kid that ends up being a raving socialist? <laughs> I could do. <laughs> I very well could do. I mean, I even, um, you know, over the years I've had different girlfriends who have voted for the Greens and voted Labor, so I think um, you never know. I might <laughs> one day when it finally comes to time to have kids, they might surprise me. How would that conversation go around the Roy dinner table? <laughs> Uh, look, I would obviously like it if they took a slightly different view of the world, but I think, um, like, I genuinely do believe this. Like, I really passionately believe in, in the things that, you know, the Liberal Party stands for what the country wants, but I actually really do also just like the contest of ideas. And as long as somebody 
is passionate about an issue and they are, you know, they believe in it, they want to do something. Well, I tell you the one thing I would really struggle with if my kid was a donkey voter. I wouldn't care so much if my kid put a one in the <laughs> in the wrong coloured box, but if they were, you know, if they were drawing a penis on the ballot paper, I would be really upset at that point, I think, because I, I really do believe in democracy. I think this is the best system of government in the world. We've got to defend it. I think it's an amazing opportunity that we get to vote in this country. And I care less that you have a difference of opinion. What I would care about is if you just didn't care at all. And that, that would be very hard. Well, that was Wyatt Roy, Australia's youngest ever politician, bucking the trend to not only join the Liberal Party when coming from a Labor family, but to just to go into politics in general. Yeah, it really is against that old political adage that's falsely attributed to Churchill a lot, that if you're not a liberal, meaning a progressive liberal, when you're 25, then you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative by the time you're 35, then you have no brain. Well, he was a conservative by the time he was 20. So there you go. That is it for our Monday to Friday show. As always, the weekend briefing dropping in your feeds tomorrow with Jamila Rizvi Jam. Who have you got? Goodness me, where do we even start? This weekend, I am chatting to Craig Foster, who was, of course, a socceroo and a captain of our national men's football side. He had an illustrious career as a sports analyst and broadcaster as well. But I got to talk to him on the weekend about what he's doing at the moment. He is an incredible advocate for refugees and asylum seekers. He's become a really political guy. And we unpacked the role that that issue might play in the upcoming federal election. And we talked about where his passion for this particular issue has come from. Love that. Love Craig. I worked with him for a long time at SBS and got a lot of time for that man. So looking forward to that interview. Thank you, Jam. And thank you to all of you for listening to our show. Um, that's it from us. A big thanks to our team. We'll catch you next week. Bye. Listener.